America's incredible prosperity was built atop a foundation of free markets and free people. We cannot allow left-wing ideologues to undermine that foundation. But with inflation on the rise and a struggling market, many in America's political class are attempting to recycle their failed socialist ideas. National Review's Capital Record podcast is standing in the gap, providing you with the arguments and analysis you need to defend our economic system. Financier and NRI trustee David Barnson hosts interviews with the nation's top business leaders, entrepreneurs, and financial commentators as they provide a practical and moral vindication of America's capitalist way of life. With guests such as Larry Kudlow, Steve Forbes, and Art Laffer, Capital Record invites you to tune in for top-level economic commentary you can't get anywhere else. Join the conversation on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your shows. Is it over? And the continued Ivy League meltdown. We'll discuss all this and more on this edition of The Editors. I'm Rich Lowry, and I'm joined as always by the Right Honorable Charles C.W. Cook, Noah Noah Rothman, and the Sage of Authenticity Woods, Jim Garrity. You are, of course, listening to a National Review podcast. Our sponsors this episode are Tommy John and Waterstone. More about them in due course. If for some reason you're not already following us on a streaming service, by the way, you can find us everywhere from Spotify to iTunes. And if you like what you hear here, please consider giving us a glowing five-star review on iTunes. If you don't like what you hear here, please forget I said anything. So Jim Garrity, we had another much-anticipated Des Moines Register Iowa poll. I was hoping that uh, DeSantis would show a little pickup. Not really. Went from 16 to 19, margin of error kind of stuff, and that Trump maybe would have ticked down. I think maybe he was like 43 or something on the last version of this poll, maybe ticked down into the high 30s, instead ticked up into the low 50s. He's at 51. All the internals got better for him. I don't know how much it matters, kind of small margins, but the internals got worse for DeSantis. Fewer people considering him, his favorable rating went down, and um, energy and enthusiasm about him also went down. Meanwhile, Nikki Haley stagnant at 16. There's another poll, not as highly respected in Iowa, morning consult out this morning that showed same basic contours. Weird, Vivek bumped up into third in this poll, which doesn't seem to make sense, but same basic contours, Trump around 50, DeSantis, high teens, Haley kind of not, not, uh, uh, not going anywhere. What do you make of it? So I have a mag piece, magazine piece on the editor's desk right now that kind of looks at the whole state of the race. And I'm going to try not to give you that verbatim. Uh, alas, you know, I only have so many thoughts on this. Um, this has been a very frustrating primary season. Uh, and not just because uh, I'm not a Trump guy. It's that it appears that roughly half the party, and conceivably more than half the party, uh, not only was not, you know, uh, was was behind Trump. They they were never all that interested in any other option, and they never gave a serious look to any other option. And there have been these theories throughout the race, like, well, you know, 
people are, you know, not that tuned in yet. They'll, they'll, you know, it'll, it'll, it'll tighten up as we get closer. Well, you know, we're, we're less than six weeks away from Iowa right now. Um, but as more candidates left the race, you'd see the non-Trump vote consolidate behind some of the options. That has not happened. Uh, and is it Steltzer? Stelter? Yeah. Uh, running the poll characterizes Trump's lead in Iowa as commanding and notes that you know Tim Scott leaving the race didn't help any of the non-Trump options. Mike Pence leaving the race didn't help any of the non-Trump options. Um, look, you know, could you know, it's not over. Nobody's cast a ballot yet. Eric Erickson points out that caucuses work differently than primaries, but mm, the, you know, a little, it, he's it, he's uh, he's wrong about that. By the way, it, I love Eric, but he he's going on the Democratic rules where you have kind of the ranked voting situation where if you don't uh, reach a certain threshold, you got to caucus for someone else. That's not the way the, the Republicans yeah. do it. I, and just the other, you look, you know, like to, for this, for, for DeSantis to have a narrow victory, Trump's got to lose about 15 percentage points between now and caucus night. And DeSantis has to pick up about 15 percentage points between now and, and caucus night. Could it happen? Sure. Has it ever happened before? Not off, in my, off the top of my head. And it would rank among one of the most amazing comebacks in political history. And you know, one of the things, like, there's two things that are frustrating about them. One is that nothing Trump does seems to do any damage to him. I don't think Trump is necessarily running a great campaign. He, you know, doesn't leave Mar-a-Lago that often. He hasn't showed up for the debates. He continues to go on these crazy tirades on Truth Social. None of it matters. None of it takes him down one iota. Whereas DeSantis, you know, like, I think he's had good debates. I think he goes, he's done 90, he's done the full Grassley. He's visited all 99 counties. He's got the endorsement of Governor Kim Reynolds. None of that matters. None of that has helped him other than maybe on the margins, a percentage point here, a percentage point there. Uh, there's like this weird hyper karma where if, if DeSantis does anything wrong, he pays this enormous price for it. But with Trump, can you know, you know, as they say, you know, he could have sh- shot somebody on Fifth Avenue and it would not have shaken his support at all. So I, we haven't really had a primary. We've had a coronation. And for those of us who, for a variety of reasons, like it's not just that, like I, you know, have my big disagreements with the way Trump approaches the job and everything really. Um, <laughs> it's that like the party never, never examined it. N- never, never looked at anybody else seriously and said, Oh, this DeSantis guy is pretty good. Or, Oh, maybe we like this. Hail-. You know, they have been hell bent for leather on Trump the whole time. Uh, I can't say it's impossible for him to win because Biden looks pretty weak right now, but I think Trump is probably the most challenging to get elected because he brings his own weaknesses and he's his own democratic turnout machine. Um, but that's where we are. So good luck, Republicans. Good luck. <laughs> so no, I, I disagree a little bit with Jim. I think there, there was a, a window there after the, the midterms where people were, were open to someone else. But I think there, there are two, there've been two big shaping events in the nomination battle. One, the indictments, and we've talked to, about them a lot. That's obvious. But the other is the collapse, the other collapse of Joe Biden, which uh, has created this, this polling that, you know, maybe it's a little uh, illusory. I, I think it can't be totally discounted, but that is just astonishingly good for Donald Trump. The Wall Street Journal poll is uh, from over the weekend, the latest latest example where uh, Trump is polling incredibly strongly against Joe Biden. And I think there are a lot of Republicans who, would, even if Trump were losing by 10, they'd be like, you know, he, he won in 16 and when everyone said he wouldn't, he won in 20. Uh, and it was just stolen from him. He's going to win again, no matter what. <clears throat> but you don't need to to uh, um, 
had that kind of sentiment. You can actually look at respectable public polling and say, oh, Trump's going to win or he's a very strong candidate. So it's created this sense that um, he's going to win among, you know, I don't know what it is, 70% of Republicans or whatever it is, and totally blown away the electability argument, which was the, the biggest crutch Ron DeSantis and others had in making the case against Trump because they didn't want to make, you know, a wholesale he's unsuited for the job case because they thought that would be too hateful to Republican voters. And instead, they wanted to make this practical case. And it's just it's it's been blown away. There's nothing to disagree with in that analysis. And it is a profound indictment of Republican voters and the information silos in which they inter themselves. I'm going to get slapped all over the place with the elitism charge on this one. But think about this logically. It is true that Donald Trump began to rebound after a, a, a bout of concern and apprehension over the, the, per, the possibility that MAGA had achieved the point of diminishing returns after 2022. A similar bout of trepidation occurred uh, was was swept away after January 6th, but it was a similar sort of a pang of conscience. So maybe we we could we should pursue a different course. And then Alvin Bragg's indictment comes down, a, a nonsensical document. The charging documents are nonsensical. I'll get, I'll grant that. But the other three criminal charge efforts to criminally charge Donald Trump are no by no means as thin as the Bragg indictment. And the Republican Party's response to the Bragg indictment was to say. Well, Donald Trump needs vindication, therefore we must deliver it. We must rally around this candidate. A similar, a similar episode occurred following the decision in a civil trial in which Donald Trump was accused uh, by the judge of engaging in sexual assault. And Republicans said, this is a grave injustice. We have to rally around Donald Trump. Well, you can think it's a grave injustice and also think that it is not necessarily to your best interests to wed yourself and your credibility to this millstone. Likewise, the, the polling right now for Joe Biden is abysmal, but the polling for Donald Trump isn't great. Donald Trump is still approximately where he is, given the poll, give or take, with outliers. He's at 46, 47%. It's where he always was. It's Joe Biden who has collapsed, who looks dismal in comparison to all his competitors. And it's an indictment of the Republican information complex for them to say that these are the conditions that will prevail, prevail indefinitely into November 2024 through the primaries, through the trials, through a likely conviction. All of this has to be maintained throughout an election year in which you have a president with the power of incumbency, which is a really hard hurdle to overcome. And the billion dollars that will be spent on his behalf reminding voters why they voted against this guy in the first place, which is a difficult psychological hurdle to overcome. The idea here that Republicans think that they can't win, can't lose, and they do think they can't lose. Kristen Solstice Anderson does these um, focus groups for the New York Times, and one of them stood out to me, it was a couple of months ago, where all the Republican voters of different you know, perspectives on the primary race were asked, you know, can't, how, how does a Republican lose in November? And they couldn't fathom it. They can't even <laughs> comprehend the, a situation in which voters would... Uh, would take stock of their circumstances and then go to the polls and vote against uh, Donald Trump. They can't imagine it. And that is a failure of imagination. So they bought the ticket. They're going to take the ride. But it's based on a lot of rationalizations that are by no means, in my view, rational. 
So, Charlie, there are two possible favorable non-Trump scenarios coming out of Iowa. Most favorable, obviously, <clears throat> DeSantis comes back and, and wins a, a stunning victory, <clears throat> shaking the, the sense of inev- inevitability. <clears throat> Le- less optimal um, scenario, but still a favorable one. DeSantis collapses or semi-collapses. Haley surges into a surprise second, and she gets uh, at least a little boomerang effect, some momentum going into New Hampshire, and maybe she trips up Trump in New Hampshire. Based on what we're seeing now, neither of those scenarios are realistically in the offing. They're still perhaps imaginable, as Jim Jim was was saying, but do not seem very likely, to put it mildly. No, they don't. If I can jump on something Noah said about taking rides having bought tickets, it seems to me that much as nobody ever gets to the second part of the equation when discussing how brilliant it is that our politicians have worked out that people don't want to fix Social Security. The observation that Donald Trump has benefited enormously from his being indicted, a bizarre sentence to utter still, never seems to be matched with the consequences of that observation, which is that Donald Trump has been indicted It's just left out there in a vacuum. Phil Klein had a post a few weeks ago in which he argued that the indictments are the reason for Trump's persistence. I think the post was titled, It's the Indictment Stupid. It seems to me entirely possible that It's the Indictment Stupid will be the correct account of the primary season. And then it's the indictment stupid will be the correct indictment of his presidential loss. Because the indictments aren't there with no track pushing off into the distance. They're leading up to trials. And if it is sufficient for Republicans to keep Donald Trump as their nominee because they are watching these indictments play out. It is presumably going to be sufficient for American voters, however much they dislike Joe Biden, to vote against Trump because they see those trials playing out. This wasn't the question you asked, but I just want to echo what Noah said. This is amazing to me that 60-70% of Republicans are utterly convinced that Trump can't lose when they know that there is a trial or three or four coming up. And they must know it because this is the prevailing theory as to why Donald Trump is in first place. Again, a bizarre thing to say. I don't know who's going to come out of what, where. I don't need to re-rehearse my framework, which is that either Donald Trump is just winning and there will be no surprise or we are still at a point at which this is just habit and it's all illusory and we're all just going to be completely shocked by what happens. But it's getting pretty late, and I would assume at this point that the habit of nominating Donald Trump for president every single year that they're asked to (laughs) is one that the GOP primary electorate can't kick. So, Jim Garrity, percentage odds Donald Trump is not the Republican nominee uh i think we're probably down to 
15%. You know, I, I, it's conceivable. Like, like one of the, the one last thing that I keep thinking about is that, you know, Trump wins Iowa, goes out there and goes off on some 45 minute rant about, we all know that uh, the election <laughs> was stolen from me. And I'm, <laughs> really, I'm so glad Alex Jones is back on Twitter. He's such a wise, smart man. And just, he, he goes out and he reminds Americans of why they don't like him and why he had 80 million people vote against him. I know, I know. No, he, he didn't vote. Yeah. Um, and and the, you know, a certain number of Republicans realize, oh, my God, this guy, this is the one man who could lose to Biden. And that, you know, later in the primary process that the, you know, either DeSantis or Haley is the last one standing and everybody lines up behind them. But again, I'm describing a scenario that really has never happened in primaries before, that when you win early, that creates momentum and more people jump on the bandwagon. So that's, you know, low. 15% is where I come in. 15, Noah. I like 15. Yeah, 15, 20. 20% on the high end. 20. 20 yeah, 20 is high to be really sunny and optimistic for you. So h- how would that happen? Uh, Haley victory in New Hampshire and some collapse. Yeah, it would be a, a poorer showing than the polls suggest in Iowa, which would, but he'd still win. He'd still get the most delegates, but it would, the media coverage around it would be, wow, Trump underperforms heading into New Hampshire. Haley surges. Chris Christie somehow disappears is raptured off the political scene miraculously and and Chris and Haley has a victory there and she heads into South Carolina with momentum and she pulls out a victory there. And then you say all bets are off and into super Tuesday, at which point it's a dog fight for delegates. And I think Trump wins most of those contests. I love the alternative reality now. It is, uh, it is an alternative so, so com- reality. That was the most comforting 15 I seconds I've had the last year. There's a one year. in five chance. Every, every fifth roll of the dice, this thing happens. I but. know. I know. I I, uh, I I prodded you into going the, the whole the whole scenario. So I'm just, just teasing. We got, uh, we got a, a 15, a 15 to 20, Charlie. I mean, the, the, the problem with the scenario that Noah laid out, it's not that it's rational, uh, irrational, but that Given that nothing seems to affect the trajectory of the primary whatsoever, I can't help but feel that if Donald Trump lost the first state in embarrassing fashion, he'd then win the second one because people said he'd lost the first one. And we'd all say, oh, well, of course, what really turned the primaries around was when the press reported that he'd lost the first one and Republican voters, they just had to elect him because, you know... that's a good point, Charlie. I mean, the degree to which there's... No, this, it's oppositional this defiance is, yeah, exactly. disorder. It's so reflexive. It's like it's childhood psychology. <laughs> um, I'm still going to say one in four, despite my pessimism, and be higher Whoa. than no. I just... Look, first off, I have no record to paging, defend here. Paging Jonathan Chait. Yeah, sure. But I have no record you. to defend here, Rich, because I've never been right about Donald Trump in the <laughs> primaries. I was completely wrong last time. So at one level, it perhaps would behoove me to be consistent in my ineptitude. But I also just, I can't explain this, and I think 70%, 75% chance is pretty good. <laughs> um, but I just can't put my finger on why. I can't shake the feeling that there's just something odd about this, that both parties are going to nominate these hated people who are massive liabilities. And I I, I feel like 25% is the right number that's down from 30 of course when i got laughed at yeah 
Well, as, as you know, I called you a couple months ago, Charlie, I have a feeling. So you're like, Rich, what, what, what is it? What's this feeling? I got a feeling. Something's going to happen, Charlie. What? What? What is it? I, I don't know, but something. Yeah. I don't know about that feeling anymore. I, I'm going I'm to go 10%. Uh, 10% because it's still a month in Iowa. You can't have uh, you know, last-minute surges. We're still in that window, but the, the hour is, is late. And I'm, th- this is um, – in a competitive race, has any, anyone ever polled – more strongly in, in Iowa than, than Trump is, is polling now. So I, I think the chances are, are very, very slim. With that, <clears throat> I know what uh, some of you are thinking out there. You're thinking that something sounds a little different about me this episode, Maybe particularly the ladies out there are thinking, what's up with the smoldering self-confidence with Rich under the surface this ep? Well, if you're thinking that, you're right. You're right, because right now, as we speak, I'm wearing Tommy John's. That's right. I'm actually finally wearing Tommy John's. Now, there are exactly two kinds of gifts in the world, ooze and oz. What guarantees ooze? Be bold. Give the gift of Tommy John underwear. When you give Tommy John, your loved ones are that much more comfortable, so they can do everything better this softness season. Why not give the gift of comfort to everyone on your list, including yourself, with new Tommy John underwear, loungewear, and pajamas with over 20 million pairs sold and thousands of five-star reviews, giving Tommy John is a holiday tradition. 97% of women and men love getting the gift of Tommy John. That's why Tommy John doesn't just have customers. They have fanatics. One Tommy John fanatic raised fantastic Christmas gift that went so right. She loves the pajamas. Now you may say, Rich, we've heard you talk about Tommy John for years now. Why are you only getting around to wearing them just now? Well... I'm not necessarily very good at ordering stuff. I'm good at ordering like certain kinds of stuff, like you know, a book I want, I'll get instantly. If it's something that's uh, required to fix a house, that that will take months. So it's taken me some time to actually order my Tommy Johns. But let me assure you, they're great. They're comfortable and actually well designed. Something I might not have uh, uh, taken very seriously when it came to underwear, but it's actually true of Tommy Johns. And by the way, my friend Kurt out there asked me. A while ago about the horizontal quick draw fly and Kurt I've got some thoughts about that for you that I'll share in another episode suffice it to say Tommy John's will make a great gift this holiday season and hey you should get Tommy John too and everything's covered by Tommy John's best pair you'll ever wear or it's free guarantee so you can shop tommyjohn.com slash editors right now for the holidays and get 20% off your first order save 20% for a limited time at Tommy John dot com slash editors that's tommyjohn.com slash editors see the site for details so no we got this ukraine funding debate going on in congress you had a measure in the senate that would have put together ukraine funding israel funding border funding republicans took it down and you have this pairing that's that's arbitrary that ultimately results from a, a right-wing talking point that I never thought made much sense, which was that, you know, we care about Ukraine's borders more about than we do about our, our own border, and, and you can't uh, support Ukraine and uh, support our own border at the same time. But um, uh, does, whatever the source of this, Republicans are, are dead set. I think, you know, re- reasonably enough, you know, you're supposed to cut deals in Congress to get some border concessions in exchange for Ukraine aid, but the Biden administration is resistant and their divisions among Republicans 
what to ask for. You have some conservatives in the House are saying, we, we want all of HR2, which was their big border enforcement measure, which is basically the entirety of the conservative um, border agenda in one bill. It was a great, great bill. I'd love if it became law. That obviously, you're not going to get that in negotiation. But then there's more serious talk about asylum reforms or um, uh, limits uh, on uh, Biden's uh, authority and ability to parole illegal immigrants into the country, which they're doing on a massive basis. But what do you make of it? Well, I think you're correct to essentially call the uh, effort to marry support for Ukraine and its defense against a Russian invasion with border security funding as a post hoc rationalization or a post hoc rationale for their otherwise inexplicable hostility towards Ukraine's sovereignty. I think this is an attempt to lacquer a superficial gloss of, um, uh, you know, good governance atop what is otherwise a, uh, a political imperative. That is really a weird, um, as my old boss, John Podhoritz said, a weird extrapolation of Donald Trump's conduct in office uh, to the Ukraine cause. Donald Trump was nowhere near as hostile to it, or Zelensky, as many of his acolytes are farther down the political chain. But it also makes a little bit of sense, right, to treat the border security issue and Israel security and Ukraine security as a national security bill, national security, comprehensive national security measure. The word comprehensive is usually more offensive than it seems to be in this context. Um, and we've seen some movement from Democrats when it comes to uh, the border reform, at least rhetorically. The president has said that he's amenable to some changes, and we've heard some chatter, uh, not necessarily attributable, but some chatter that says the White House is open to perhaps reforming asylum statute. And some members of Congress have made some noises to that effect, although the particulars seem to be vexing to them. But I, for the life of me, I can't understand why this hasn't happened yesterday and it hasn't and won't, won't happen before the end of this week, which is the most important thing to members of Congress getting out of town on Friday. They have no higher, <laughs> no higher objective than to make sure that everybody's out of there by December 15th. Uh, and it's just a profound abdication of um, their duties, their responsibilities to, uh, to their constituents and to the safety and security of uh, America and its national interests abroad and at home. Uh, it is to me a, a, a no brainer to have, if not done these as standalone funding bills for both, for all of these respective causes, all of which are um, have all the justification they need that there has to be some political cover associated with it. Why? All these causes are very popular. Border security is very popular. Ukraine is popular. Israel is popular. It's the fringes and the margins that these politicians seem to be more responsive to than anybody else that have some problem with one issue or the other. One, you know, the far left fringe progressives, they don't like Israel. The really loud online right, which is not representative of the broader Republican Party, really doesn't like Ukraine. The maximalists in the Democratic Party want no border security. Maximalists on the Republican side want total border security. Shut everything down. All of these people are not representative of anything other than a primary electorate, but they control the agenda. They set the agenda at the expense of broader policies that are popular, that are effective and desirable. Um, it is 
an illustration and microcosm of the problems that afflict our politics primarily due to our broken primary system. Yeah, so Charlie, there there are all sorts of ideological divisions about, about these issues, but from from where I sit, it would just be a, a win-win to continue aiding Ukraine. Now, the, the counteroffensive did, did not go as advertised. We're in a battle of attrition. Battles of attrition are not unusual in and warfare, but you know it'd be better, obviously, politically, if the Ukrainians were sweeping to victory in a way they're they're not now. But it's they're they're still you know holding this behemoth to their extreme uh, eastern territories and um, degrading the the Russian military machine, which is a benefit to the West. And we can actually have lawfulness and order at the border, which Biden professes, I underline professes, to want. As well, so you'd think for the the public interest, it'd be a win win to to get this deal done. Yes, you would think that. Noah's right that one of the reasons that this is difficult is primaries. I think the bigger reason is that the federal government does too much, and that most of the people within it have given up trying to explain what it is that we spend money on and why. The American public is probably open to funding Ukraine and Israel, certainly is open to funding the border, but we don't really have these conversations. We don't really have foreign policy debates. We don't really have debates over immigration Everything every year gets rolled into these big comprehensive bills. And that's because the federal government is enormous and spends much more than it has and unfortunately is still on autopilot. And so the people who engage in the debates politically are the people who throw the bombs. The border is either the biggest crisis we've ever seen or it's an example of white supremacy in action. J.D. Vance is now telling people that Nikki Haley wants to cut Social Security so that she can send the money off to Ukraine. The arguments that are advanced in the middle don't really get heard. Now, that's partly because they're not as exciting as that. That is an exciting argument to listen to. That's the sort of thing that makes headlines. That's the sort of thing the press likes to talk about. But it's also because the people who want to do everything would have to justify what is now a what, $6 trillion budget. And that's really difficult. So I think what we're seeing is, in part, the result of a political class that for a long time has just resolved disputes over how we spend money by saying we will spend it on everything. If you look at the last 20 years, that was the compromise at every given point. Republicans cut taxes, Democrats spend more. Republicans don't want to cut spending, so they also spend more while keeping the cut taxes. George W. Bush cared a great deal about foreign policy and funding and prosecuting the two wars over which he presided, and the deal that he struck with the Democrats was that he would also spend all of the money that they wanted. The average Republican who is sent 
with great talk of cutting government to Washington doesn't actually do it. They focus on the things that they want to achieve and then they say yes elsewhere, unless it's particularly egregious. So I'm not sure it's just primaries. I think we have a structural problem that has led to this being quite difficult to debate. And then what happens is that when you have sums that in the grand scheme of our federal budget and even our foreign policy budget are not too large, if you actually look at the money that we've spent on Israel and Ukraine, it is not particularly great relative to the federal budget or even the defense budget. They get loaded in and the opponents of them step back, abstract it out and say, well, look how much money we're spending on everything put together. So I I mean, I, I actually expect that this will be resolved by the same politicians that I'm describing and in some sense criticizing, just coming together and saying, we'll do all of it. But they don't really feel a need or have the capacity to make the case in a way that, you know, I know Noah certainly would like, and that opens them up to demagoguery. So, Jim, one of the anti-Ukraine arguments now uh we hear from J.D. Vance, from others, it's just, it's lost. There, there's no way that Ukraine can prevail. They're on the verge of collapse. So let's not throw good money after bad. And, you know, my take is that if we actually cut off Ukraine, this would be one of the dumbest betrayals uh, in a couple generations of, of U.S., foreign policy. We have some betrayals on our record that are uh, uh, not great into China. You know, we potentially could have saved the, the South and, and Cambodia <clears throat> if, we, if we had continued uh, an air campaign. Everybody who helped that, us in Afghanistan. Sorry yeah, to interrupt that, you, Rich, but like, uh, yeah. yes, there's a long and ugly list of people we have abandoned. But, but, the, but my point is that those were all, you know, Afghanistan was 20 years and we didn't create a self-sustaining government or uh, army. You know, Iraq was, was after a decade or whatever it was of, of hard counterinsurgency combat and, and a war where the WMB, WMDs weren't there. Indochina was after, you know, 15 years of, of uh, engagement and 50,000 50, guys lost. We haven't lost one person here. All we spent is like $100 billion. Yes. Uh, look, I, I would love to know who, first of all, I'd love to know if J.D. Vance has spoken to any Ukrainians. Um, and if so, who? My guess is he's either spoken to none or not many. Um, whenever I write something about Ukraine, I get people who read us and I guess also watch Tucker Carlson to say, you got to hear what Colonel McGregor's saying. McGregor is this guy who's been saying the Ukrainians are going to collapse, you know, within the next week for, I think, roughly the last 100 weeks. Um, the, the Ukrainians are always on the verge of collapse in this, this assessment. Now, I think you can safely say the Ukrainians have fought to a stalemate. Now, let's remember the, the thinking was that the Kiev was going to fall in three days. And they fought back. They drove the Russians out. Remember that big, long tank column, two miles? Well, it's now something of a jungle gym uh, north of Kiev. You can go out there. You can climb on them. I wasn't able to make it on that. Like, I've talked to a lot of Ukrainians. And the impression I came away from my trip late last summer was, I don't know if these guys are going to win. I, I don't have a crystal ball. And no doubt the odds of, of repelling every, every last Russian uh, from every last square inch of Ukrainian territory. That's a really tall order. But these guys are never going to quit. These folks are pissed. They are fighting the people who raped their grandchildren. They're fighting the people who raped their grandmothers. They don't want American troops to come in and fight for them. They want to slit those throats. They want to fight this fight. This is 
personal to them. And this is about survival. Either, you know, either they win this fight or the country doesn't exist or they exist as this rump state along the Polish border. Uh, and it's just a matter of time before Putin starts up the war again. So like in their minds, they don't have any choice. And my attitude, you know, my understanding is like, if we cut off, there's this mentality amongst some corners of the Republican Party. Well, if we cut off the funding, the Ukrainians will have no choice but to be reasonable and sit down with that old, good old, trustworthy Vladimir Putin and they'll reach some deal. I'm here to tell you, they're not going to do that, at least not at this state. Now, maybe at the end of the winter, at some future state, maybe Ukrainians are open to saying, okay, you guys get to keep Crimea or something. But it's not going to be, that's going to be for a while. Because right now, they are in the business of, cu of cutting throats. They are in the business of killing Russians. They're not interested in talking about any of that stuff. And if we won't fund them, we'll just go to the rest of, e of Europe. They'll go to the black market. They'll go to whoever can give them guns. And if they have to fight the Russians with sticks and stones, they will fight the Russians with sticks and stones. They're not ready to negotiate. Or at least they weren't when I was there in, a, in late summer. And I don't think things have changed that much. So that that's rather. But on this overall point of like border funding uh, and and you know asylum policy changes in exchange for Ukraine funding, you know who says this is a good deal and the president ought to take it? That noted frothing at the mouth right wing extremist Mitt Romney, and he said so on Meet the Press. Now everybody talked about how he criticized Trump. Nobody talked about how he said to the Democrats, "Look, we're trying to help you here. The president is getting shellacked in the polls, and a big reason is border security." Everybody in the country, left, right, and center, thinks Biden has failed on this. And here the Republicans say, hey, you know what? Let's build some, some the fencing that you said you're going to you know, start out of Trump. Let's let's finish those projects. Let's change the asylum claims so that people don't get to, you know, we don't have catch and release anymore. And let's say that if you're trying to claim asylum and you didn't claim asylum anywhere else, if you did not try to say any other country, well, then you can't stay. These are not crazy right-wing xenophobic ones. John Fetterman, my new favorite Democratic senator, uh, also said it's not xenophobic to uh, be concerned about the border and that Democrats should not dismiss this. Now, you Fetterman's know, what, not a... What, yeah. what happened, by the way, to John Fetterman? Just like in the last month and a half, he became the single best Democrat on the national stage. You know, it was like um, he was disgracing Israel. himself with the uh, tracksuit thing. And and then, then, you know, the Senate reversed itself and said, no, you have to wear suits. And all of a sudden he like shows up. He's got hostage flyers. You know, he's he's mocking uh, Menendez. He's uh, mocking uh, pro-Gaza protesters. It's like not as though his yeah. vote has changed or his eye, But now all of a sudden he seems like this different kind of Democrat you know, that, he, that the promise yeah, was. I, 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 be. Rich. Before, the, well, before you get in there, Charlie, all right. Israel, Bob Menendez, and now uh, the issue of the border. And I'm going to say like just an observation. Um, he was always like, you know, pre-stroke, blue collar, Western Pennsylvania. That's not progressive Ivy League. You know, that's a different strain of the Democratic Party. So that coupled with the fact, by the way, if you listen to him, he sounds a lot better now. I think the recovery from the stroke is progressing nicely. So maybe this is always who he was. But anyway, so I, I, Charlie, I interrupted. No, I was just going to say the Babylon Bee's explanation is that as he's regained brain function, he's become more conservative. <laughs> yeah, there's some there's some late Woody Allen movie, not not one of his his best, but the the teenage uh, boy was a National Review reader and a conservative until it turned out he had some sort of brain blockage that was uh, that was cured, and then he he became a reliable progressive again. So Noah, exit question to you. And by the way, you know, if Ukraine's on the verge of collapse, I think that's actually a really good reason not to cut it off, to, to try to keep it from uh, from collapsing. But uh, exit question to you, 
Will there be a deal on Ukraine funding and the border that uh, passes Congress and is signed by the president? So to take your premise, actually, and and really tease it out, I think there's a lot of uh, substance to the notion that Americans' eyes have turned from this conflict as a result of its stasis. The counteroffensive didn't achieve its objectives by the admission of Ukrainian officials. And we've had a relatively static battlefield, not totally, but relatively static. And that's just not exciting. If it were to become dynamic again, and Ukraine started losing a lot of the territory that it had miraculously fought back to uh, to take back from Russians in 2022, I think you'd see a profound interest in the Ukrainian prospect, Ukraine's prospects, and real support for an urgent effort to recommit to its defense, because American prestige is already committed to this conflict. It can't be uncommitted. We've invested deeply in Ukraine's continued sovereignty, and any effort to pull back sacrifices not just treasure, but that prestige. Um, to just to briefly on this one point, Republicans are uh, your point that Republicans are being profoundly stupid. It would be really ridiculous to give Joe Biden an out here because he can be accused, and I have accused him, and I think it's justified that he has throttled lethal aid to Ukraine over the course of this conflict. He hemmed and hawed and they want a platform and he won't give them the platform. And eventually he gives them the platform at far beyond the point at which it would have been tactically valuable on the battlefield. White House is already toying with this notion of blaming Republicans for whatever bad thing happens on the battlefield as a result of their bulking at this defense. And Republicans would be foolish to hand them that talking point. So will there be a deal? I think a yes because Republicans want it, all you have to do is survey how uh, Speaker Mike Johnson has behaved. He was a reliable vote against Ukraine's support until he became Speaker, at which point he has become a dogged supporter of their, of their cause, because that's where the conference is. The conference isn't with the loudest voices who, who can't, can't help but make a case against Ukraine without saying that everybody who supports Ukraine wants to enrich themselves and has a defense contract in their back pockets. They can't make the case without ad hominem. Those aren't the representatives of this conference. So yes, I do think they want a deal. Will they get it before December 15th? No. Charlie, deal? Deal or no deal? Yeah, I think there'll be a deal, and I think it'll come together at the last minute, and I think it will be the product of panic and a desire to go home and not any reason mm-hmm. debate. Jim Garrity. Yeah, on this, I'm relatively optimistic. It, it, there's there's too much upside and too much downside of not getting a deal, both geopolitically and for the administration, for them to not throw Democrat throw Republicans some concessions, throw them a bone, and get some sort of deal done, so you don't look like an utterly incompetent old man. Yep, there will be a deal with that. Let's hear from our second sponsor of this episode, Waterstone. When Patricia tried to donate to a conservative organization through her donor advised fund. Her request was denied. Why? Because they said she was trying to give to a hate group. That's why she switched to Waterstone, a donor-advised fund dedicated to upholding Judeo-Christian values. Waterstone is unique in the world of donor-advised funds. It accepts gifts of cash as well as real estate, business interest, oil and gas, and more. They can help you receive an immediate tax deduction, avoid capital gains tax, and make a difference for the charity of your choosing with this charitable pool trust. You can even generate a lifetime income stream from your charitable giving, Waterstone strictly adheres to a Christian statement of faith, including a pro-life declaration, and does not give to charities 
that contradict those values. Waterstone is trusted by so many men and women of conviction that they give $10 million per month in charitable grants. They can work with you or your financial advisor to make a giving strategy that fits your needs. Contact Waterstone's giving strategies team today for more information by visiting waterstone.org slash NR. That's waterstone.org slash NR, waterstone.org slash NR. Please check it out. So Charlie, you guys in my absence discussed the Ivy League meltdown over anti-Semitism. The episode late last week, we have more events. We have a resignation from the president of UPenn. We have the Harvard president under fire as of our recording here Tuesday morning. The the word is that she is going to survive. But this hearing, and especially Elise Stefanik's line of questioning, is, I believe, the single most decisive blow rendered against the DEI orthodoxy at elite colleges ever, ever. I mean, there, there's there's uh, been nothing like it. Yes. Now, the question is, why? And I think the answer is clear. It's not, as some have charged, that those who want free speech on college campuses want an exception made for Israel. It's that the answers that were given to Elise Stefanik made it clear in the plainest possible way that the whole thing is Calvin Ball. The problem here is the double standard. The problem here is, as we've been observing since October 8th, that upon the instant that this attack was reported, all of the superstructure of the DEI brigade collapsed. Well, that's difficult to make as a case when you're trying to pull together all of these disparate strands. Op-eds here, the way people you know talk, university, literature, and so on. But in Congress, those three administrators, and I call them that deliberately because that's what they are. They're not academics or scholars. The three administrators made it about as obvious as they could that they did not believe a word of what they were saying, and they did not believe a word of what they had said prior to that hearing either, that the entire thing is contingent, or to borrow a phrase from the former head administrator at Penn, context-dependent. This is why it's been so devastating. It's really difficult to illustrate to people how deep the rot goes, but Stefanik did it. She posed uh, an interesting question as to where the lines were between harassment and speech, and she got in response a thoroughly, on its own merits, defensible answer. That is that this matters uh, what the context is, and it matters uh, what the intent was, and it matters whether or not the speech was brigaded to action. But that's not what those people say in any other circumstance. That's not what those universities do. It's not what the last 20 years have taught us about the reflexes in higher education. And it was just profoundly obvious. The other reason that it was so effective, in my estimation, was that In so many contexts now, even the slightest hint 
of offence or opprobrium yields these long statements about how we stand with this person or that person or need to alter society or need to reflect upon the structures and iniquities that blah, 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 blah. But none of the three administrators who were being interviewed did that. There was no throat clearing. <laughs> there was no grand and sesquipedalian expression of solidarity. Uh, they retreated into abstractions that they don't actually believe in. And I think that was jarring for people who are accustomed to watching university administrators go out of their way uh, to empathize. Uh, and it made it clear that this whole edifice is, is rotten and is um, circumstantial and really is ultimately just a weapon to use against the people that they dislike. <clears throat> so, Jim, one of the reasons the UPenn president is out, well, perhaps the main reason, is just so many donors were pulling their funding. But it just goes to – this was was Bill Buckley's prescription and got it man at Yale when the problem in academia was, was uh, different and extremely minor compared, obviously, to what it is today. It was that the, the alumni should take more of a hand – but you've had this this situation where, like, you know, maybe they're Democrats, but kind of reasonable people, these big billionaire donors, have funded this poisonous ideological architecture at these schools, in effect, you know, for years, for decades. And then you finally have them, some of them um, awakening, you know, in this testimony and saying, no. And they, they said that, and at least at Penn, it had an effect. Yeah, look, um, one school of thought is that these wealthy donors uh, knew what was going on, how the culture was changing on these campuses, and they were fine with it. One is that ah, they knew it was getting there was political correctness and and you know some wacky activist professors, but ah, well, they didn't think it was that bad. They hadn't realized how pervasive that mentality and that total inversion of the values of the university had occurred. Um, just to go back to the hearing for one observation, I think like. And Charlie's correct. It, it was so crystal clear. It was so vivid. <clears throat> I, I, you know, when you say it's context dependent about whether calling for genocide of Jews or any other group of people <laughs> is bullying, is against the code of context. Like, I'd really like all of you just take a moment, think about the context in which calling for the genocide of any, it's not bullying, which yeah. it's okay. You know, as I, you know, put it in the morning, like, you know, pre previewing our lighter items of the week. We're probably going to talk about pro football. Every NFL fan's got some, I can't believe the refs blew that call. What the hell is wrong with these guys? You know, but if you called for the genocide of NFL referees, people would look at you like, what the hell's wrong with you? Like, you know, what way, you know, genocide is never the correct answer when you're dealing with some sort of problem here. Um, so yeah, that's, Jim, Jim I, I don't think it's, it, you know, it wasn't quite what they, what they meant, but it just sounded hilarious when they're like, all right, you know, is, is gen genocide vi violate your, uh, calling for genocide violate your your code of conduct well if you act on if you act on your call for genocide that, Once that would be <laughs> to underscore <laughs> jim's point if, first couple kills that's okay <laughs> once it gets into really organized if someone, one camp that's all we can allow if, if someone on a college campus said that immigrants from lithuania were three percent worse at mathematics than everybody else that would be a crisis Suddenly yes. genocide is this, this right. nuanced. <laughs> and God help you if you use the wrong gender when you were talking about that. Yeah, no, like, you know, the, the idea 
that people who will call out the SWAT team over a perceived slight uh, would you know then be okay. Well, it depends on when you're how you're calling the genocide and all that stuff. For obvious reasons, uh, it's 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 utter nonsense. So like, this is a look. This is a good thing to see. I, I know there are people who are like very you know deeply frustrated by this. I feel like the masks are slipping. That that we now have a, a class in charge of our universities who can't say genocide is bad all the time. That you know, like that's you know, most people are like that's well beyond the pale. That's that's like you know miles and miles beyond what they think is reasonable. And I think that Ivy Leagues have done, and almost all of higher education, has done permanent damage to their perception of prestige, which is why they can charge that high tuition. And if the place is run by a bunch of maniacs and left-wingers who are totally okay with genocide, and I noticed at Yale, they uh, somebody ran up and put a, a Palestinian flag over the menorah for Hanukkah. Remember, they're anti-Zionist, wink, wink. They just attacked the menorah because they, they couldn't reach the Israeli consulate. Bullpucky. When, you know, like everybody's taking it out. Some people were protesting Jerry Seinfeld. You think Jerry Seinfeld's setting po- the IDF policy against Hamas? <laughs> These are anti-Semites. And I, I'm, like, I'm, you know, it's self-evident here. When you take out your rage on any Jew you can find, that's anti-Semitism. That's not anti-Zionism, as they insist. So, Noah, it's been part of the conversation since October 7th on, on campus, and we've heard some more of it last several days, given this blow up, that what, what they'll try to do in academia is just kind of absorb anti-Semitism into the DEI framework. So they, they will be actually consistent, but the way they'll be consistent is you, you can't, um, um, in the same way, you can't use the wrong pronoun, you can't say anything that's uh, offensive to a Jewish person. Do you think that's... Uh, that's plausible. That's going to happen. That that would work. What do you make of that? Well, I think that's illustrative in two ways. <clears throat> One is that it exposes the extent to which they think the remedy for the ills of uh, prejudice is more prejudice. Is that they assume that that's because what that is what DEI is. It is a leveling of the cosmic scales to atone for the sins of our fathers real or imagined in history, and to uh, provide a leg up for those who uh, suffer unduly from the conditions into which they were born. Uh, And to suggest that that, to say that that hasn't been applied to Jews is an indictment of the experiment in the first place. Um, But it is reflective of the degree to which they are also so deeply committed to DEI. And I think we've overestimated the extent to which this event has shaken academia out of its complacency. I don't think that is true. Liz McGill, who is, along with a board member, who uh, was were removed under pressure, or resigned under pressure, um, McGill was a caretaker. She'd been in that position for less than two years. She was low-hanging fruit. How this, and, and some people have suggested that it has everything to do with the scale of the size of their endowments. And I don't think that's true either. Harvard has 53 billion, it's pretty large, but um, Mass, uh, MIT has 24 billion, Penn has 21 billion, not too much of a difference there. And yet Sally Kornbluth at MIT has managed to escape all culpability for her conduct in that hearing. What really makes sense here is that this was an effort to save face by, from Penn's point perspective by um, giving them somebody to whom they didn't have many attachments. It's not the case for Claudine Gay at Harvard, who's the real test case. Claudine Gay has found that 600 plus faculty members have rallied around her. The board has rallied around her. 
She's been accused credibly at this stage, in fact, undeniably at this stage, of a campaign of plagiarism that is staggering in its scale. And what is Harvard going to do? So, so I've just seen the headlines, but th- those are those are serious charges, the plagiarism. Yeah, I've I've done the cursory work. Aaron Sibirium over at um, Washington Free Beacon has uh, a big uh, display of all all these offenses that are alleged. And I think they they go beyond alleged, but just to cover our bases. But uh, there have been several uh, instances in which she's lifted whole passages from the work of actual scholars, because she's not a scholar. She's a representative of the DEI uh, mindset. She exists to ratify this worldview that reduces people to the accidents of their birth and sorts them into categories and sets them against each other. And to dis- to dislodge her from that role would upset the whole apple cart. So they're allowing Gay to go back and re you know put the quotes in where she just somehow forgot to put them over the course of her entire academic career. Because there are no consequences for this sort of behavior. There cannot be, lest it indict the entire project. And I don't think they're going mm-hmm. to allow that to happen. Yeah, so Charlie, actually, that's a, that's a great segue to the exit question to you first. After the last week, DEI on college campuses will never be the same. Yes or no? Well, it will be the same, at least for a while, because Claudine Gay is being retained. At least for mm-hmm. now, there seems to be no desire to do anything that would upset that structure. So I suppose it will stay around for a while. But I do think that this and the broader shift in the coalition that sustains DEI that October 7th has prompted is going to weaken and perhaps collapse it in the long term. Jim, um, we should not expect deep structural changes. It's just too much, you know. It's been too part, too too big a part of the philosophy for too long. But I do think the events of the past week are going to kind of create this mentality of don't do something, do, don't do something stupid where the public can see it. That this was able to flourish when the world, when the country and the world were not paying much attention to what was going on on campuses. So one, turn down the invitation to testify before the house. And B, be a little more careful in any public venue or interview uh, and don't get caught just saying that genocide might not be so bad, depending upon the context. <laughs> no, you're, you're a no. Uh, no, and not necessarily forever, though. I think Charlie's right that we're talking about a near medium term thing because this post-October 7th reality into which American Jews find themselves thrust has been a real mugged by reality moment. Uh, it's one of those things that you've seen people really question their ideological commitments, their principles, their allies, uh, to a degree that I've never seen from American Jews. And once that materializes in tangible consequences for Democrats, because let's be honest here, the the patrons uh, on whose beneficence they rely in academia are Democrats, Democratic elected officials, Democratic donors, progressive activists. That's the support structure. And when that starts to erode tangibly and in ways that are undeniable, that's when I think the consequences really come home. But we won't see anything until that happens. Yeah, maybe you guys are right long term, but in the short medium term, no. It'll be like affirmative action. They will just duck, cover, tap dance, whatever they need to do to pr- uh, protect their their deep ideological commitments here. With that, let me do a quick plug for NR+. Plus. Let me just do it briefly. We need people to pay a little bit 
for our content. Not a lot. It's really a crucial way to support our valuable journalism. So if you value what we write, what we say, please consider joining tens of thousands of your fellow National Review readers and doing the right thing and paying a little bit for our content. You won't regret it. If nothing else, you'll sleep easier at night. With that, let's hit a few other things before we go. Jim Garrity, you were disappointed at the amazing, dominating Jets win the other day that um, hurt their chances to get, get a high draft yeah, I, I should have seen it coming. Uh, I, you know, people were blown away by the fact that first, after putting together perhaps the single most boring half of football in many years, a 0-0 tie against the Houston Texans, the Jets exploded for 30 points, three offensive touchdowns when they've been struggling to get one offensive touchdown a game. Um, I should have realized this, that the moment the Jets started being in serious competition for a really high uh, draft choice, uh, there's this great site called Tankathon, which keeps track of the draft. Uh, the draft is going to talk about it in a previous episode. Uh, that's when they win. That's when they suddenly come out of the blue and play terrific. And uh, CJ Stroud, who had been lighting up the league, looked terrible, had a concussion late in the game. Hopefully he's making a big recovery. Rainy day, you know, the other factors, maybe just a matter of, you know, the, the Houston had, Texans had had a good streak and the ball was bound to bounce a different way and their luck was going to change. But, uh, hey, you know, for, for an afternoon... Uh, my older teenager had gone off. My younger one was watching with me. And we got to cheer in a bar that was nearly empty because the commanders were off. So we just like had the place to ourselves and had a great old time. So that and the holiday party, I had a fantastic weekend. So yeah, I don't remember if you remember. This was, I don't know, I guess more than 10 years ago now or about 10 years ago now. But both the Jets and the Titans were terrible and going going for first round pick. And they played a Sunday night or a Monday night game, which was one of the worst ever. But the, the Jets were, were ahead at the end, and the, the Titans it did this desperation lateral play, you know, starting their own 30, and, and it got down to like the five, and the Jets st- stopped them, and the Jets won the game, and the Titans got Mariota out of that, out of that deal, who's a great gamer, but was not the, uh, the franchise quarterback we had hoped for. So Noah, you've been watching Modern Marvels on the History Channel. Yes, I am rapidly evolving, not devolving, evolving into Chuck Grassley in my old age. Um, (laughs) Samsung televisions have these like built-in television networks that just play series over and over again. And and they're all fantastic, but I've settled on modern Marvels, the history channel program. And I just find myself entranced by it. And it's some of the most banal stuff you could possibly imagine. Like the, the nut industry in America, where do our nuts come from? How do they make Dr. Pepper? What's the history of lawn equipment? All this stuff, I, I just, I'm, I'm in, ensorcelled by how fascinating all this stuff is. And this is, you, I can't good, imagine. Good use of ensorcelled. I'm not sure ensorcelled has ever been used on this podcast before. I don't know if that's the right use for it. But that is see if the AI no, transcript good. software can pick that one up. No. <laughs> Charlie, your parents are staying with you. They are. And on Sunday, we went to Universal Studios and we did the Harry Potter parts. And my kids got wands from their grandparents. These are beautiful wands that look like the ones in the movies. And then if you go to different places in wands. the park. You said, you said wands, right? Wands, W-A-N-D-S. They use them yes, to ensorcel okay. It sounds like you said people. wands. I was like, what's a one? No, 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 ensorcelling wands. And they, 
they interact with various parts of the theming in the park. So you stand on a spot and it tells you how to do the spell and you point your wand at it. And then if you get it right, water will fall from an umbrella or a saucepan will turn upside down or something. It was it was enormous fun, actually. We hadn't done this uh, bit before. So thank you to my parents for getting the wands so your parents obviously can't be as enamored with America as you are, but do they, they enjoy America? Yeah, very much so. But as you say, not quite as much as me, although there aren't many people, I think, who enjoy America yeah. as much as me. So <clears throat> I, I've been gone for a little while. Noah has manfully uh, guest hosted for me, which I, which I appreciate. But I had a brief hospital stay for the first time ever. had had pneumonia. <clears throat> yeah, had pneumonia and uh, stayed at a, a real nice place not too far from me. Not nearly as many hostages at this hospital as I expected. And the underground tunnel facility is not not nearly as well developed as it, it, as it should be really disgraced to American medicine. But in our Thanksgiving episodes, it's kind of boring. Uh, this time around, we had to say, okay, let's say what we're grateful for besides modern medicine. But it just brought home to me, I, I mean, just it's the, 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 the level of, of care available to us as 21st century Americans is, uh, is truly... Incredible. Rich, you still and filed your syndicated column. I know, you know, you know, you're still 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 a hack journalist, even if you're feeling uh, sick. Noah, you know, you still got still got deadlines to uh, uh, to to abide abide by. But anyway, I'm I'm on I'm on the mend, and with that, it's time for our editor's picks. Jim Garrity, what's your pick? Uh look, I was very tempted to go Andy McCarthy, but I realize I'm picking him almost every other week. And so it's pretty easy. Um, Charlie has been on a tear lately and pointing out the contra, you know, with the Hunter Biden uh, indictments, all the different ways in which Hunter Biden's actions and arguments in court undermine uh, the arguments of his father and the administration. Joe Biden ought to be thrilled by the prosecution of Hunter Biden. The wealthy tax cheat is an excellent point that I feel like doesn't get nearly enough uh, attention uh, Charlie just dissects a really deeply flawed Axios argument, pointing out how angry and sad President Biden is that those Republicans are targeting Hunter Biden, never mind <clears throat> the Department of Justice. Uh, once again, well done, Charlie, although I could say that just about every week. No, what's your pick? Uh, yesterday's jolt by Jim. The anti-Semites are out and the masks are off. He summarized some of that piece earlier in this broadcast, but uh, I would turn your attention to it so you can read it fully. Um, it is the degree, it is on the degree to which the 10-7 attack in the aftermath has revealed the extent to which uh, what something that we already knew, mostly conservatives already knew, but that the ideology to which uh, progressives have committed themselves is a, a series of high-minded bigotries that uh, this DEI program, for example, intersectionality, all of it, have contributed to a worldview that dehumanizes uh, people. In fact, that is the whole program. And it's, uh, you know, just glossed over with enlightenment. And it's about time that it was questioned um, publicly. And we're fortunate that it is now upon us. It's, it's unfortunate that the circumstances that produced it were a massacre of Israelis and Jews. But um, that's a right side, I suppose. Okay. Well, I'm going to take Jim, and not just because he praised me so nicely, but partly because the post that I wrote this morning was in part based on Jim's morning jolt from last week, in which he laid out the sordid 
nature of the indictment against Hunter Biden with a sledgehammer. Uh, this really uh, had an effect on me uh, reading Jim's description of it, which you posted, thankfully, Jim, about four minutes before we recorded the podcast on Friday, and I got to speed read, so I was up to speed. But when I read that Axios thing this morning, I thought, well, hang on a minute, hang on a minute. Didn't Jim just paint a picture of absolutely appalling behavior from Hunter Biden of exactly the sort that Joe Biden is always talking about? You know, these wealthy tax cheats who screw over the middle class. So I'm going to uh, pick Jim for once again, uh, perfectly explaining the news just in time for the morning. So I'm going to pick uh, the aforementioned Andy McCarthy his work on Section 702, which is kind of thankless because, first of all, you know everyone wonders what Section 702 is, and then you explain it to them, and then they're still like, so, so wait a minute, what's, what's Section 702? But this is a really important debate going on in, in Congress having to do with our, our overseas intelligence collection and some mega types, especially in the House, uh, are upset with the way the FBI has conducted itself the last several years, understandably, but are want to take it out in the most self-destructive way imaginable by killing this program that's really important to national security. And Andy has explained in a great deal uh, of uh, detail and with great patience why this would be a mistake. So that's it for us. You've been listening to a National Review podcast and you rebroadcast, retransmission, or account this game without the express written permission of National Review magazine is strictly prohibited. This podcast has been produced by the incomparable Sarah Shuddy, who makes it sound better than we deserve. Thank you, Charlie. Thank you, Noah. Thank you, Jim. Thanks to Tommy John and Waterstone, and thanks especially to all of you for listening. We're the editors. We'll see you next time.